One of the most insightful, thought-provoking Christian author in the last 200 years, at least in my opinion, is a Christian British author named C.S. Lewis. Now, even if you don't know that name, most of you probably know his most famous works, which was a series of fiction books that have some Christian themes in them called the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there were some movies made about them a couple years ago. But for me, the book that I've appreciated the most that C.S. Lewis wrote is a book called Mere Christianity. It's a book that was written uh, to talk to someone or written for a skeptic to God or to Jesus or to the Bible and to help navigate some God themes and to be able to explain it in a way that a skeptic might uh, not only understand but by God's help accept. And in that book, Mere Christianity, there's an entire chapter that he devotes to the topic that we're going to be tackling today. Now, I left the topic name out of this quote that I'm going to share. And if you've already seen what we're talking about today, it's no fair. You know what goes in the blank. But in case you didn't, here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says in his book, the essential vice, the utmost evil is unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through blank that the devil became the devil. And blank leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I wonder what sorts of things you're thinking about that would go into that blank. Well, here's what C.S. Lewis would say, that it's pride. And just in case you think that maybe C.S. Lewis was a little bit off and he was over-dramatizing the danger of pride, I just want to let you know that uh, almost every theologian would say that pride is so dangerous because it is kind of the sin that's behind so many other sins. And in fact, in terms of our series for today, when you think about this topic, probably more than any other one that we've talked about, it has the potential of leading us into a ditch. So, what is this thing that we're talking about? What exactly are we talking about? And what exactly is C.S. Lewis talking about when he's talking about pride? Well, let me first share with you what it's not. It's not being proud of your kid because he or she made a good decision. It's not being proud of your spouse for some accomplishments that he or she made. Um, it's not being proud of a home improvement project that went really well, as rare as that might be for me. <laughs> It's not being proud of your kids, but it is overwhelming your kids and their coach and the refs because you are kind of finding your value 
in how your child performs on the court or on the field or on the dance floor. It's not being proud of your spouse. That's okay. It's being so proud with your spouse that you have a very hard time apologizing even though you know that you are part of the problem, if not the entire thing. It's not being proud of a home improvement project that went well. It's having a really hard time being happy for other people whose home improvement projects went better than yours and frankly looks nicer than yours. Here's how C.S. Lewis defines the pride that we're tackling today. He says it this way. It's a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. It's constantly thinking about ourselves more than anything or anyone else. Or in terms of our first fill-in for today, because, you know, we got to make it rhyme. Pride causes us to view everything we see through the lens of me. It causes us to see every, or it causes us to view everything we see through the lens of me. It's continuously thinking about ourselves and how am I doing and how am I viewed and how do I look And then, here's the other part of pride. So often, it is also not just how do I feel or how do I look, but, but, how do I look compared to other people? How am I doing compared to other people in the room? How am I doing compared to other people who have the the same job or do the same thing with their lives? How How do I come off compared to others? In his chapter, C.S. Lewis says this. See, pride, the kind we're talking about today, gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud. (laughs) Let's say it this way. Um, Pride turns everything into a means of getting respect and approval of others. It's this constant comparison this constant, this constant focus on ourselves and how we are doing and how we come off and how do we compare. And so pride in the classic sense of the word comes off as being arrogant or cocky or overly confident. But In uh, some research that I did and some reading I did on pride for this message, one author brought out this very, I think, insightful thing when it comes to pride because 
Just because you're not arrogant does not mean that pride is not an issue. This author points out there's two sides to pride. The first he calls the superiority pride. And so you're kind of doing this mental comparison in your brain. You're seeing, viewing everything you see through the lens of me. And for a superiority pride, what happens is that the person who's doing the comparing, they find themselves um, coming out pretty well compared to others, or at least that's what they think. And it comes off as being arrogant or overly confident. But the author points out that there's the other side of the pride coin, and he calls it an inferiority pride. This is a person who has a very low view of themselves, a very low self-esteem. They find themselves comparing themselves to other people and how they look and their talents and where they are in life, and they come out feeling bad because they don't measure up. And do you, do you notice that's still pride. Why? Because, well, that person is still thinking about themselves way too much. But instead of coming out on top, they're finding themselves coming out not so well. In fact, if you, if you really think about it, and I know there's a lot of uh, medical and biological aspects of like anxiety, but, but when you're in that anxiety loop, that anxious loop that so many of us maybe have experienced, it's kind of the same thing, that we're finding ourselves focusing too much on ourselves and seeing everything through the lens of me and how I feel. Um, Fill in number two. Pride makes it difficult to rest, to be at peace, to be calm, to be happy, to rest, because we are continuously working to prove our worth. Can you relate? I doubt there's a single person in this room or listening online that haven't found themselves focusing on themselves too much at times or maybe, maybe all of the time. So what do we do about this? Perfection is not going to be possible in this area. But by God's grace, I do believe that we can set ourselves into a better direction. We just have to look at things through a different lens. We just have to change the wiring of how we think, or better said, let's have God do it. Let's have God change the wiring of how we think. And so for that, we're going to go back about 2,000 years to the life of a man named John the Baptist. Now, here's some things to know about John the Baptist. He was a contemporary of Jesus, although he started his ministry slightly before Jesus began his. 
And, and John the Baptist, um, he was a super popular prophet. In fact, the Bible tells us that there were thousands of people who would go out to listen to this man who ate locusts and honey and wore camel skin as clothes, camel hair as clothes, that, that people would go out in the, by the thousands. One section says that all of Jerusalem went out to listen to John the Baptist preach and to watch him baptize. And that's why he's called the Baptist or the baptizer, because he was the one, by God's direction, who began the custom or the sacrament of baptism. Well, as John was doing his ministry and his work, he had this very interesting interaction with some of his followers. We're going to read about that in John chapter 3. After this, uh, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he, their Jesus, spent some time with the disciples and Jesus also did some baptizing. So John actually, as I mentioned, started the custom of baptism by God's direction, but Jesus, of course, also continued that process and he was baptizing people as well. Now, John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem. This is an area near the Jordan River because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put into prison. So to recap, John is baptizing near the Jordan River. He's very popular. People want to listen to him. They want to be baptized by him. Jesus comes onto the scene and he's baptizing in the Judean countryside and people begin to flock to him. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples. And remember, disciple just means follower in this sense, the general sense of disciple. Don't think 12 disciples here, but between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And, and so some of John's followers got into the discussion with, with one of the people there, a Jew, about this Old Testament custom of ceremonial washing washing. And by what we will read in the next verse, what we can easily surmise is that in this conversation about a washing, a ceremonial washing, that the conversation then began to matriculate into talking or discussing baptism, which wasn't the same thing as ceremonial washing, but you can see how they're connected a little bit. And ultimately, they must have also began discussing this other guy Jesus, in the Judean countryside, who's also baptizing just like John is. Next verse. They came to John, that would be those disciples that were talking with that, that one Jew, and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you, you know who they're talking about? Jesus. And this shows you that John's followers were still trying to put everything together, did not quite totally understand that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior, the promised Messiah. They call him that one who is with you. On the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. John, okay, 
We've had a lot of popularity. Our ministry has been going really well. People by the thousands have been coming to see you and to listen to you and to get baptized by you. I just need to let you know, people are unfollowing you. People are following Jesus. You know, it was all about the followers even 2,000 years ago, right? People are following Jesus instead of you. And you can kind of, I don't know, inference. And oh, by the way, aren't you mad about this? And oh, by the way, isn't this a bad thing, John? People are leaving us for that guy, Jesus. And do you see the problem with these disciples? There's a couple problems. But in terms of our focus for today, they were thinking about themselves way too much. They were thinking about their ministry with John. They were thinking about their popularity. They were thinking about the growth of their little kingdom. They were thinking about themselves. They had a view in which everything they would see was through the lens of me. And so John answers them. To that, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. This is so key. You're feeling pretty puffed up about what you've done or what you've accomplished or where you're at in life. Be thankful, but not puffed up. Everything we have, it comes from God, from the one who gives it from heaven. And yeah, did it take some hard work? Yes. Has God given you some talent so that through that hard work, you're able to have what you have? How many of you chose to be born or to live in this country that has so much? What a blessing. What a gift. Everything comes from heaven. He chooses your lot in life. And yes, again, we have some control, but ultimately our blessings come from him. (laughs) So whether you're feeling puffed up or feeling down about what you have, recognize it all comes from God. We have nothing to be puffed up about. We have nothing to feel bad about. Everything we have comes from him. And, And John wanted his disciples to realize that. And then in the context of John's life, he says, this is how that's played out. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. What I have received from the Lord, John said, was not to be the show, but to point people to the show. To not be the Messiah, but to simply point people to the Messiah. To not be the one that people need, but to point people to the one they need. Here's how we see John testify about that a couple chapters earlier. When asked about his role, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am not the Messiah. 
I am just the voice of one calling in the wilderness. I am making straight the way for the Messiah. I am making straight the way for the Lord. John was simply an arrow pointing to someone other than himself. He was a directional sign, maybe in lights, right? Pointing everyone, look, he's the one you need. His name is Jesus. John is saying, my ministry is not about me. My popularity is not about me. My life is not about me. And then John uses this uh, illustration. You can tell he's a preacher and a good one at that because he knows how to use illustrations. And he references a wedding. He says, the bride belongs to the groom. The friend who attends the groom, in our vernacular, I want you to think about that friend. It's the same thing as the best man. The best man who attends the groom waits and listens for the groom. And he's full of joy when he hears the groom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. Uh, in this little illustration, John is wanting his hearers to, to think about how the best man and the bride and the rest of the wedding party is at the wedding and they're waiting for the groom to show up. And when the groom gets there, you know what a good best man does? He doesn't take center stage. Yeah, he may have a toast. He might sit at the head table. He has an honored place. But a good best man, a good maid of honor, they just kind of fade to the back and make sure that the focus is on the groom or on the bride. And then John shares these, this simple, these simple words that many of you have heard, but man, not only applicable to him, but our lives as well. Verse 30. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. These words were applicable to John in a very unique way. His whole calling, even prophesied by Isaiah, was to become less and to point people to Jesus. 2,000 years later, I don't know that any of you were prophesied about in the Old Testament. But as I thought about it, I don't think our role has changed a whole lot, has it? As the words of our mission statement of the church say, we are here to lead people to Jesus. And you know that's not just the church corporately's mission. It's really the calling of every single follower of Christ. It's not about me. I need to become lesser. He needs to become greater. I am here 
to not have an easy life, to not find my own popularity. It's not about me. I am here to simply point people to Jesus. And so sometimes we get the misunderstanding of what true humility is. Our third fill-in for today. Humility in the biblical sense is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I'm just a nobody. I can't do anything. I'm humble because I don't feel like I have any gifts. That's not humility. That's kind of inferiority pride. You're thinking too much of yourself. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And this is what, when we get there, what one pastor called the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. That we, when we can learn to forget about ourselves, <laughs> there's a rest that comes with it. In, in fact, C.S. Lewis, he describes what a truly humble person looks like in his estimation. Here's what he writes. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He won't be some sort of greasy, smarmy, I had to look that up. It's a British word. It means insincere. All right, there you go. You learned something. Who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you think about a truly humble person is he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He's not thinking about humility. He's not thinking about himself at all. You know what I know about you? Is that we all have the desire to find value and to know that we're worth something. So where does that come from? So that we can begin the journey, not to perfection, but to the new direction of more self-forgetfulness. Well, have any of you ever been to a track meet where the first thing that happened at the meet was they gave out medals to the winners and then they ran the race afterwards. Never been to one like that. Never will. You see, when it comes to a track meet, your performance comes before the declaration of your victory. And that's where the butterflies come. Because we want to win. We want to do well. We want to make it on the stand and be declared a medal winner. But the declaration comes after your performance. Do you know that this is true also with every single man-made religion? That the declaration 
that we're all looking for, that there is a God who loves us and cares for us and wants us with him for eternity. Every other religion, they're all made up, they're all man-made, the other ones. It's all like this. Your performance comes before the declaration. But that's not the way it is with Christ. And this is who John the Baptist was living for. This was the one whom needed to become greater in the minds and hearts of his disciples and of you and me, and then we become lesser. Here's what John said about that guy baptizing over there. We know him as Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, don't, don't look at me. Look over there. Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. This is the one I meant when I told you a man will come after me. He surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. See, the, the greatest example of humility is not a baptizer named John. It's a baptizer savior named Jesus who willingly became a lamb to be slaughtered, who willingly suffered death and hell so that you and I don't have to, who willingly lived a perfect life in our place and as our substitute. And you see, when it comes to almost every other place in the world, especially religion, your performance comes before the declaration. But when it comes to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, it gets changed around. Your or the declaration comes before your performance. So who are you? in the room. The prettiest, the most successful, God's like, I don't care. You're my child. Jesus died for you. Where are you going to look to find your value, to find the, how you're doing? God says, look at the cross. Look at my son's hands and feet. Look at him, and you'll find who you are. You've already made it to the stand by faith in Jesus. You've already been declared my child. Now, go live for me. Not thinking about yourself, not thinking you have to earn something, not thinking you have to be better than the person sitting next to you, not thinking that you have to have the biggest business or the best church. I've already declared I love you. It's not about you. Live for me. Number four, your value is not found in what you do, but in what Jesus has done. I have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, nothing to win. And when our focus is on the cross, you, you know what starts to happen? Just a little bit. We start to forget about ourselves. 
we start to become lesser, not less important or like of no value. We have tremendous value. It's just not about us. It's about him. Now, I would like to think that when I got done writing this message and preparing it to share with all of you, that I would never, ever again be in a room and think about how I'm comparing to other people. But I know it's going to happen again. And whether it's a superiority pride or an inferiority pride, it's going to happen to you too. But in those moments, I don't want your brain to stay there or your heart. When you start finding yourself anxious or cocky because of pride welling up in our hearts, just tell yourself, that's a lie from the devil. And in that moment, return to the cross and find your value and find your peace and rest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, like so many things, this is easier to talk about than it is to apply. It's easier to preach about than it is to live. And yet your truth is able to free us from the bondage of our personal lies or the lies of the devil that would like to tell us that, man, our value comes from our performance. Lord, thank you for establishing our value at the cross and declaring who we are through Jesus Christ. Lord, help that to sink down into our hearts, sink down into our minds that we might, well, forget about ourselves and live for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.